You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Matthew 28. We are in our Apparent Principles uh, series, and, and I think this is going to be the last message that I preach um, on, on the parenting subject, and uh, it's, uh, there, there are a lot of other things that could be said. I'll just probably wait till another time to do it. Um, it's such a big subject, and it's so important. I mean, we're, I really believe, honestly, I believe the result, the, the chaos and the disorder in our country largely is due to a lack of godly parenting in this generation. And we've left God out of the schools, we've left, we, and people have gotten out of the church, and uh, you can tell the way that these young people now are behaving in the streets that there is not a godly dad and a godly mom showing them the way. And I'm not, I mean, every, I know people make their own choices, but, but I do believe that the parenting subject is absolutely important in this day and age. And we need to uh, take, take note of of how we can do this in a, in a way to change, maybe uh, be salt and light in a, in a world that needs it. And our children are the next generation. They'll be the ones being asked to stand in places we didn't have to stand. And we need to take this, this subject seriously. Matthew 28, and you say, okay, we're talking about parenting, and yet you're talking about a subject that is not necessarily about parenting. Well, that's true. Matthew 28 Verse 17 is where we'll start, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. It says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things Whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And you say again, what does that have to do with parenting? Well, do you believe that this group of people standing there before Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and he gave this last command, do you believe that some standing there were parents? Well, I believe so. Um, we have a call not just as a church. We have a call as parents to make disciples. It's not just the church's responsibility. We don't, it's not like we bring our children into a a church microwave. We put them in there and when they come out, they're disciples. It's the church's responsibility. No, there's a responsibility for individuals to make disciples too. And in our homes, parents, we are to be making disciples. I'll try to make the case tonight to you, you can go ahead and be seated. Thank you for standing. <clears throat> I think I overdid it in the song until the storm passes over. My voice started leaving. Sorry. <clears throat> American sharpshooter Matt Emmons uh, at the 2004 Olympics in Athens was the favorite to win the 50 meter competition. The final shot in the 50-meter sharpshooting competition, he was leading by a large margin. He didn't even need a bullseye to win the competition, and this would have been his second gold medal of the Olympics. 
All he needed to do was hit the target relatively close to the bullseye, and he would win another gold medal. He was holding what many at that point considered to be an insurmountable lead. So when he stepped then into lane two, and he aimed his rifle at the target over 160 feet away and pulled the trigger, something he'd done many times before. He was very confident as he pulled the trigger. Sure enough, his bullet struck just outside the bullseye. And as he lowered his rifle, thinking that he'd won another gold medal, the scoreboard didn't register his shot. He motioned to the officials, and he thought, well, something's wrong with the electronics, something's wrong with the scoreboard, and, uh, but the scoreboard had not made a mistake. You see, Matt Emmons, that world-class shooter, he had been the one that made the mistake because Emmons had accidentally cross-fired at the target in lane three. He was in lane two, but he had accidentally cross-fired into the target in lane three. He was awarded no points, and he lost the gold medal, and he finished in eighth place, all because he was aiming at the wrong target. How sad. I mean, it's easy to understand in a situation like that how, I mean, how shooting at the wrong target changes everything. It was just a terrible mistake, and you feel bad for him, and yet, in a figurative sense, Aiming at the wrong target happens all the time in parenting. See, it's easy as a Christian parent to to be aiming for the wrong target as we raise our children, and we don't even realize it's the wrong target. There are a lot of good targets out there. The target of, we want well-behaved children. That's not a bad target to be aiming for. We want moral children. We want respectful children. We want our children to be obedient. We want them to be self-controlled, and, and we don't mind if they excel in something like music or something like sports. And long-term, we want them to have a successful career. We want them to have a strong family. We want them to have financial security. We want them to have a long marriage. Those aren't bad goals. Those are all things that we want for our children. But are they the most important things to desire for our children? See, I would submit to you that as important as those things are that I just listed, They are not the right target. They're not the most important target. And so as we look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we see here this this command of Jesus Christ that he gives to his disciples. And what, what do we often refer to in these verses? What do we often call what's happening right here? What's the name of this? It's the Great Commission. It's called the Great Commission because it's the primary task of the local New Testament church. And we know that because it was the last command that Jesus Christ gave to his followers before he ascended into heaven. This task was given to take the gospel to the world. You could sum up the Great Commission with two words, reach and teach. Those two words really do sum up the Great Commission. And you have the word reach, which is right here. He has in verse 19, go ye therefore. In Mark 16, 16, he says, go ye into all the world. In Acts 1, 8, he says, ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. Our life's task as believers is to take the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus Christ to the world. And I'm thankful that that Brother Ruckman had the vision to, to have a meeting like he had tonight. That's a fulfillment of the Great Commission. He's taking the gospel to the world. And you say, well, I mean, he's just right around the corner 
from the church, but it's not in a church building. He sets up a tent. People get excited. They're like, what's going on in there? And there are people that would go into a tent to hear preaching that wouldn't probably step inside Eastside Baptist Church. I do believe that he's taking the gospel. That's, that's one way to take the gospel to the world. And right now, it, it, you, it, there's a, some things that we're not doing like we normally do. We'll be getting back to some of those. But you're, I think right now, knocking on a door um, and a, a cold turkey handing somebody a track, I'm not really sure how that'd be received in a lot of households. Um, but, but So he's doing what he can, and I'm thankful for that. He's doing that part of the Great Commission, which is reaching. That's our life's task. No one would deny that that's the first step of the Great Commission. But there's another piece to it, that if it's not accomplished, it means the Great Commission has, is incomplete. And it's not just about reaching, it's also about teaching. So we can get re- really fired up about taking the gospel into a neighborhood and presenting the gospel to somebody that's never heard and trying to witness to somebody. But that's just half of the Great Commission. We are to do that, but the next step is to teach them. We don't simply reach and then leave them to themselves. In verse 19, it says, teach all nations. In verse 20, it reads, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Teaching, honestly, teaching is the primary emphasis of the Great Commission. I mean, we are to reach, yes, but teaching is mentioned twice. The word teach in verse 19 It comes from the Greek word mathetes, which it means a learner or a pupil or a disciple. That's teach. It's the root that's used when you see the word disciple in the Bible. And by the way, if you want to know the biblical thing to call yourself as a follower of Christ, the New Testament calls calls us disciples. That's what we're aiming for. That's the target we're shooting for. We are making disciples, the ultimate fulfillment of the Great Commission is that disciples are produced. Disciples, people that learn of and become like Jesus Christ. That's the greatest calling of every Christian, from the smallest child in this room, to every teenager in this room, to the oldest adult in this room. It is our, our goal, our, God's goal for us as followers to be disciples. That's what he wants from us. Romans 8, 29 it says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the aim. That's the end result of all of our endeavors, that disciples are produced. Those that resemble Jesus Christ's image in their words, in their thoughts, in their attitudes, in their behaviors. We are in the disciple-making business. So, but is that just a church's responsibility? I think that's where we fail sometimes as parents is we assume maybe that we can just bring our kids, our children, and it's the church's responsibility to raise our children to become disciples. Well, in order to look at that process, I want to think about some of the marks of a disciple. And then as we go through these individually, then I think that we'll start to see it is not just the church's responsibility. We parents, we're disciple makers. I mean, when you think about Genesis 1, and I preached this early on in this series, that we are, we are raising image bearers in our homes. That, that was Adam and Eve's call to raise image bearers, to, to be fruitful and multiply in the, after the image of God. That's what we're doing. So what are the things that we're shooting for, though? What's the target? Well, the first mark of a disciple, the, the, the part of the, the target is that a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a learner. 
specifically a learner of Jesus Christ. Like I referenced earlier, the word disciple means a learner or pupil in the same way then that a student studies under someone else, a disciple learns about Jesus Christ. We're, if we're a, a, a child of God, then you are in the school of Jesus Christ. That's the most important education you can get. The first and most important characteristic of a disciple is that phrase in verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. You can't observe Christ's commands unless you know God's word. So you cannot observe Christ's commands unless you know God's word. So he says, teaching them to observe also all things whatsoever I've commanded you. How do we know what, what he's commanded us? Well, we have a Bible in our hands. We, that's how we know, um, that's how we observe God's commands. We know God's word. The central influence in a disciple's life is the word of God. Not just a head knowledge, but an observance. He doesn't just say, I want them to know my word and be able to get all the answers right on a test. No, he says that he wants them to observe all things that he has commanded him them. So as a church, may we never get to the place where we de-emphasize the importance of opening and declaring God's word. See, this, the teaching and preaching of God's word has been diminished in many so-called churches in exchange for maybe newer programs or different methods, and they're trying to appeal to a generation, really a secular generation that doesn't really even know the Lord, and they're changing their programs and their methods to meet, to meet the desires of an unreached generation. They're, they're basically dumbing down church to reach the masses. And yet, we see that the Bible should always be in the middle of this, the church and the disciple-making process. You know, it's not a New Testament church if the Word of God isn't in its guidebook for faith and practice. But in many places, instead of preaching and teaching, they're watching new Hollywood films, and they're talking about life lessons they can learn from the movie. And you say, oh, no, that, that's not happening. Yes, it is. It's happening everywhere. They're taking 45 minutes in the music service and playing music that doesn't sound much different than what you would hear at a concert downtown, and, and, yet, and then 15 minutes to share a few words of encouragement at the end. And the meaty Bible teaching and preaching, the doctrine that should be the emphasis, has been de-emphasized, for new programs that appeal to the masses and really largely appeal to the lost. But John 8, 31, Christ said, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. You know, you cannot be a disciple if, you're not, if God's word is not the central influence of your life. You can't be a disciple unless God's word is the central influence of your life. There's no discipleship apart from the disciples' textbook, which is God's word. We feel, and you know, we feel strongly about that in a church setting. I knew there would be some amens about that, but I want you to stop and consider what the Lord says about the role of God's word in our homes. See, it's, see the God's word, we think, when we think of the church, uh, of a local church, we think, okay, God's word should be the central figure. This should be open, this should be preached, this should be taught, this should be the central influence in every service. But what does the Bible say about our homes? Now look over at Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I, I think most of you know these verses. You're, you're familiar with this, with this text. You're familiar with this passage. Look over in Deuteronomy 6, and we'll begin reading in verse 6. 
Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, this is Moses, and he's writing to the children of Israel. They're God's people. And look what he says about the words of God. He says, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. You know, the, the central theme of a family's conversation shouldn't always be about sports. It shouldn't always be about the latest activity. Uh, one central theme around the, in, around the dinner tables and when we lay down and when we rise up and when we're walking by the way, when we're together, families, I'm wondering how much of God's truth is being conveyed in our, in our family units. Because this, is, this shows us very clearly that it should be the central influence, not just at the Eastside Baptist Church, but in the homes of Eastside Baptist Church members. It says, thou shalt, uh, verse 8, And when thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And the, the, the Jews in the Old Testament, uh, they would take these little containers, and they would write scripture on parchment paper, and they would roll it up and stick it inside a container, and they would attach it around their wrist, or even around their forehead. That's what he's talking about. Is it Because they didn't have a copy of God's word like this. I mean, if you think about it, uh, Moses, when he was saying these things, it obviously hadn't been written out yet. So they would take small pieces of passages of Scripture, the ones that they would consider to be some of the most important, and they would, write, they would put it on parchment paper, and they would attach it around their wrist or on their forehead. And that's what he's talking about. That's the presence that God's word should be playing in the life of God's people. It should be at hand that easily. I mean, he says, in your, on your hand, on your forehead, and he also says, also in your heart. He said in verse 6, shall be in thine heart. He says, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and of thy gates. You know what he's saying is that families, moms and dads, your children shouldn't be able to look anywhere and not see God's word written out somewhere. If it's not attached to their wrist or it's not attached to their forehead, it should be written on the posts of the door. You say, well, that's kind of strange. Should I paint it? Well, I don't know that you should paint all over your house, uh, John three sixteen. but I don't think it's a bad idea to have in a nice frame some verses around the house. My wife, she does that a lot. She'll write out a verse that she's thinking about and she'll put it on the bathroom mirror. You know, something, it's very often something about vanity or something, I don't know, but not really. She'll write little signs to herself and she'll write a verse that's on her heart and Sometimes she gives her little motivational, little motivational speeches in forms of paper. I'm going to tell on her about this. She, she uh, said, calories are everywhere. She, I came in the kitchen one day, calories are everywhere. She said, girl, you're so fat. That's what she wrote. I don't agree with that. But then Jace got a piece of paper, and he wrote out, she wrong, and then taped it right underneath it. I was like, that's my boy. That's exact. Why didn't I think of that? He got points that I should have earned. She wrong. But you know, the word of God should have a presence in your home. It should be central to your family's life. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6 and look there. And you say, well, that's just an Old Testament doctrine. It's an Old Testament command. Uh, but Ephesians 6, 4 confirms that it's not just for the Old Testament age. It's just for us as well. Ephesians chapter 6. You do a little turning tonight. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, and it says, and you've heard these verses, and ye fathers, 
Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that word admonition is exhortation or encouragement. But the word nurture is very interesting. Um, it can mean a number of things. But let me just tell you what the, what the definition for nurture is. This says, it says the whole training of children, which relates to cultivation of mind and morals and employs for this purpose commands, admonitions, reproof, and punishment. It also, in short, means chastening or chastisement. So let me just back up and describe it for you. So this is the whole training of a child. Okay? This is their education. And it relates to the cultivation of the mind and morals. And it uses these things. Commands, admonitions, reproof, and punishment. So according to that verse, the word nurture means that parents are responsible. I'll say it this way. Parents are responsible for the moral education of their children. And the, and the means that a, parents, a parent will use are commands or admonitions or encouragement, reproof or correction, and punishment or chastisement. So we are to take the principles of God's word, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Where, where do we find the nurture or the education for our children? Where do we find the encouragement for our children if, if, of the Lord? Where do we find it? Well, it's in God's word. That's how he's revealed himself to us. We are to bring our children up in what God's message to his people says. I mean, the, the spiritual and moral education of children was given to parents. So I ask you then, if your child's education, moral education, is dependent on you as a parent, what grade are they in? If, if my child's spiritual education... Listen, I know that our children... Um, they may be further along because of church or because of this or that, but if all they had was your influence as a dad or mom, how much education and God's nurture and admonition have they received from mom and dad? How educated are they based on your teaching, your moral education, your spiritual education in their lives? We are responsible for the moral education of our children but what happens is, I believe, that parents assume that role is meant for the church. Parents assume, well, you know, the church is there to teach my children. And, I, and it, it is amazing how often uh, you, you get that, you know, the, there are weaknesses in every Sunday school program. And, and there are weaknesses in every curriculum. And there are parents that think, well, well this isn't covering these stories enough. And it, it's not covering that. And it's like, but that, the church, as much as the church can provide the, the church is not responsible for the moral education of your children. It's given to parents. So here's the one big principle I want to mention tonight is that God gave children to parents. God gave children to parents. Now, does that mean that the church has no role? Obviously not. I think we disobey clear commands of Scripture if we bypass the authority and teaching and help of a local church. But the church is a supplement to the moral education a child receives at home. And I think it'd be good for us as parents to change our minds about this, to shift our viewpoints about this, and say, if they never get anything at the church, you know what, I, that's okay because they'll get everything they need. As much as I can give them, they're going to get it at home. 
So if a disciple is a learner of Christ, most of what he or she, most of what our children should learn of Christ is supposed to come from home. So I ask, then, what is your child's view of Christ based on the moral education you're providing? How far along, how educated are they? Most of what they learn of Christ, they should get from you. The church should be strong. I mean, I'm a firm believer in that. It should provide solid Bible teaching. It should provide an organized uh, program. It should be seen as an invaluable tool and help in your life and in the life of your children. But it's a supplement to the teaching, to the education that they're they're supposed to be getting at home. Not in just what we teach them, but also in what we show them. See, when Jesus Christ over in Matthew, back in Matthew 28, when he said, uh, teaching them to, what did he say? To what? Observe. Teaching them to observe. So this is not just head knowledge. A disciple doesn't just have a list of things in his head that he knows about the God and he knows about the Bible. No, teaching them to observe, to live it out. And that leads to the second principle tonight, the second truth. So first, a disciple is a learner, but second, a disciple lives it out. A disciple reflects Jesus Christ in his words and in his spirit and his actions. John 15, Jesus said, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. And a lot of times people think that the word fruit means more souls. And that is fruit to our account, but that's not the primary fruit of a disciple. The primary fruit of a disciple, I believe, is found in a list that you'll see in Galatians chapter 5. We're not going to turn there tonight. Most of you are familiar with it, the fruits of the Spirit. It says love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. Those are the fruits of the disciple. Those are the ways that we are living out our discipleship in that kind of fruit. That's the kind of fruit you can't fake, by the way. You can't fake joy. You can't fake internal peace. You can't fake patience and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. You can't fake those things. Those are the result of somebody walking in the Spirit. Those are the kinds of fruits that a real disciple has. And more than strive to have our children, our young people, maybe more than strive to just have them act a certain way or do certain things, it should be our desire for them to bear evidence of Christ in their spirit, in their words, in their dealings with one another. That's a much more sure sign that they're disciples than just that they just do disciple-type things. So let's go back then to the thought that you're responsible for your child's moral education. Let's go back to that thought, not just in what they hear, but in what they see in your life, teaching them to observe. This is more than just a head knowledge. This is a life lived out. And it's, listen, it's not likely... And I'll just say this, you can know everything that you want to know, but it's not likely that you'll produce disciples in your home if you're not a disciple yourself. See, here's another big principle tonight, and that is what is caught is just as important as what is taught. Folks, in your home, parents, in our homes, what is caught is just as important as what is taught. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't teach I'm saying, though, that they should observe. 
the marks of a disciple in their mom and dad's lives. Parents, our actions speak louder than our words. And we can have all the, all the Bible knowledge in the world, but if it doesn't show up in our lives, then how much difference does it really make? We can teach it, and we can preach it, and we can, we can say it all day long, but how do we control our anger, or how, or how is our spirit toward our spouse, or how patient are we when we're dealing with our children? Our actions can cancel out what we're saying. You, you, you know this. See, parents, we must be careful not to say one thing and do another. And I truly believe, and I'm just going to throw this out there. It's something I've observed a long time. I truly believe that inconsistency is the most harmful trait for Christian young people. Inconsistency in their parents. Now, they hear mom and dad maybe say one thing, but they watch them do something different at home or in a different setting. I can't tell you how many young people that I have talked to, that I've dealt with, that struggle with following the Lord as a teenager because they hear one thing and they observe another. Not just what their parents are saying, but, but I'm just going to be honest, sometimes even what's being preached in the pulpit at their local church, and they hear one thing being preached, but they see another thing being lived out at home. And I'm telling you, that inconsistency shakes the foundation of our young people's faith. They, it is not just about what we say or what we believe. It is about what we live out. So a disciple reflects Christ in his words and his spirit and his actions. So what are they learning? What are they learning about Christ by watching me? That's the question we need to ask. What are they learning about Christ by watching mom and dad at home? What have they caught that doesn't line up with what they've been taught? Think of it this way. If our target for them is discipleship and they're aiming their arrow, which this is, children do this. They see what their dad does or what their mom does and they think, that's what I'm gonna be. I wanna be like that. So if, if our goal is discipleship and they've pulled their arrow back and they're aiming for a target maybe on dad's, the way that dad speaks or on mom's attitude or on dad's gentleness or on mom's patience level, if they let the arrow fly and that's the target they're aiming for, will they hit discipleship? I think for a lot of parents, and listen, we're, we're, none of us are perfect. We're all human and none of us have, are, have been perfect examples, but for the most part, what we say and what we do need to line up together. That inconsistency will, will shake the foundation of a young person's faith. We provide the living, breathing example of Jesus Christ. We should first be disciples, living it out before them. And when they hear at home, and, it, and what, when what they hear at home and in Sunday school and from the pulpit right here, it, when it all lines up and they see us living it out, it becomes much more likely that they're going to hit the right target. So a disciple is a learner, a disciple lives it out. And third, a disciple puts Christ above everything else. These are just marks of a disciple, and I'm applying it in the home. Matthew 6, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Listen, God and the things of God should be first in the life of a disciple. The primary passage on discipleship is Luke 14. Let's go ahead and turn over there and look just a couple verses real quickly. Luke chapter 14.
This is a, a great passage on discipleship. If you're, if you're wanting to, to see some marks of a disciple, this is a great one to look at. But look down at, the verse, at verse 26. Luke 14, 26. It says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And you've heard this, this, this verse before. You know about this. We know that doesn't literally mean that we have to hate everybody except Jesus Christ. Unless you have a big sister, then there's, there's some exceptions there. I grew up with a big sister, so. We know that doesn't literally mean hate. It just means, though, that there's one that's obviously out front. There's a clear cut first in our lives. Our goal as disciples for ourselves and the next generation is to have one first. See, I, I'm, I get very tired, and I know you do too, uh, of the generation that's been raised that everybody gets a trophy and everybody's a winner and we don't keep score in our games. And boy, that just makes my blood start to boil. Because I remember what it was like to lose a bunch of those games when I was in t-ball as a kid. But you know, I, there, has, there, can, there only can be one first. And I, I dealt with this some at the beginning of the year, but there's a book called Essentialism by Greg McCown, and he said this, the word priority, and I, again, I've referred to this before, but the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It meant the very first or prior thing. It stayed singular for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term and start talking about priorities instead of just priority. Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Somehow, we would now be able to have multiple first things. And when you think about it, it is illogical to think that many things could be first. In your life, there can only be one most important. There can only be one priority. There's no such thing as multiple even equal priorities. We are striving to make disciples that have Christ right in the middle of that wagon wheel. As the illustration I used earlier in the year. There's only one thing can be on the hub of the wagon wheel. Everything else is a spoke. But right there in the middle, if we are raising disciples, it should say Jesus Christ. That's the most important Thing. That's the only priority that we should be shooting for. That's the only target we should be aiming for. And really, this principle that I mentioned earlier applies here as well. What is caught is just as important as what is taught. See, what we love will impact what our children love. What we're passionate about will impact what they're passionate about. What we prioritize will impact and likely determine what they prioritize. And our children, they follow in our footsteps. Whether we like it or not, that's what they do. And they will know what we love the most. They will know what we prioritize. They will know what's most important to mom and dad at home. They see it every day. We can't hide it from them. And there can only be one first in our lives. There can only be one priority. Christ should not be one of many. For the disciple, Christ is first. So parents... Where on the pecking order does Jesus Christ sit in your heart? Where on the pecking order or in the pecking order does Jesus Christ sit in your home? When it comes to your walk with God, how many things do we allow to, to, to come in before that? 
What about Christ's church and our commitment to Christ's church? Have we allowed outside things to replace him as first? Don't forget what he says right here. Look down in verse 33 of Luke 14. So likewise, whoever, whoever, or sorry, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Kind of stated in a different way, but it's the same concept. See, sometimes we act like it's unfair for Christ to ask us to forsake all for him. Let me just ask you this. Didn't he forsake a lot for us? I mean, he left, the, he left the Father's right hand, a very comfortable place to sit. And he took upon him this robe of flesh, as, not even as a king, but as a baby. And he, grew, and he went through the process of growing up like all of us have, all of us do. And he got dirty and he got hurt and he was hungry and he was tired and he had all the things that we go through, all the temptations we feel he went through them as well. And he forsook a lot for us. Especially when you consider that on the cross, his own father forsook him. So when you think of what he left for us, what we're asked to do as disciples for him doesn't seem nearly as bad. These are the marks of a disciple, a willingness to leave it all for Christ, to put him first and let everything else be down below. We can say he's first in our family. But what do Wednesday night services say? We can say that he's first in our lives, parents, but what does our giving say? We can say that he's first and that we've forsaken all else, but what does our willingness to serve say? And I know it seems heavy, but discipleship is what we're all called to. And these are the marks. These are the kinds of followers we're aiming for. We're shooting for. These are the targets that we're shooting at. And I just wonder if our children are shooting at the wrong targets because we've been shooting at the wrong targets. We must be learners. We, parents, and I don't just mean parents, I mean you're an example as a mature believer to somebody watching you in this church. You can have an impact. You can make a difference. It's not just parents. I know parents are first, and that's their priority is their children. But you could, make, you could be an example. You could be a continual lifelong learner of Christ. You, you could be living out the image of Christ for somebody else. You could be putting him first and forsaking all else. It's our, that's our role as mature believers but we will not produce disciples if we're not disciples ourselves. So here's what, here's what we parents need. And I may have used this illustration before, but I think it gets the point across. So here it goes. See, sometimes making disciples is approached like we're travel agents. And a travel agent sits behind a desk and gives you a brochure telling you where you can go and makes suggestions on how to get there and maybe works out a good deal for you to travel and the, it gives you a brochure and, and it gives advice on what to do once you're there but based on what they've read and then maybe counsels you on what you should consider when you, when you get there. These are the kind of things that you should see. But listen, a travel agent may or may not have ever been to the destination you're going to. See, what our children need are not travel agents. Our children need tour guides. See, not a tour guide is with you on the journey. He's been there before. 
A tour guide knows the landmarks, and he knows the pitfalls, and he knows the spots that you don't want to miss, and he keeps you away from all the dangerous spots. He walks with you where you go. And if we're going to help our children get to discipleship, we need to be disciples, we need to be learners and living out Christ's image and willing to put him first and above everything else. We need to be tour guides, not travel agents. We don't need to be sending our children on a journey that we may or may not ourselves have ever walked. We need to be hand in hand walking them to shoot for a target that we many times have been able to hit ourselves. Are you a tour guide? Parents, are you a tour guide or a travel agent? Are you leading them to discipleship with a head knowledge or by experience? Are you leading them to discipleship with a target that you've aimed for and hit? Or are you pointing to a target that you've actually not ever been able to land on yourself? See, our chances of reproducing disciples is very low if we're not disciples. So tonight's application really is twofold or threefold, maybe. It's be a disciple. Parents, be disciples first. The most important thing you can do for your children is to be a disciple. That means a lifelong learner of Christ, a person who lives out his image, a person who puts him first and forsakes everything else. Be a disciple. But also be a disciple that makes disciples. Don't assume that somebody else is going to train your children. Don't assume it's the church's responsibility. Don't assume that it falls in somebody else's lap to make sure that your children hear about the Bible stories in the Old Testament. Don't assume that it's your Sunday school teacher's responsibility to encourage your child to walk with the Lord. Don't, don't assume that it's somebody else's responsibility to keep your child accountable to do right. It is our responsibility. We should be disciples that at home are making disciples the role of a parent is to make disciples so let's be tour guides not travel agents let's all stand together every head bowed every eye closed we're going to have a verse of invitation i know it's a specific application to parents but i want to encourage those of you in here who may not have children that you're influencing to determine that yes i may not have a child that i'm influencing but i can be a disciple and in being a disciple i can influence somebody else to be a disciple as well don't just point people in a direction where you've never walked yourself don't be satisfied with being a travel agent determine no as a parent i'm going to be a tour guide and if i'm going to have my children aim for a target i will strive my very best in my life to hit that target myself Maybe the Lord has spoken to you about how you are at making disciples, maybe not even with children, but others. Chances are you will not bear fruit in discipleship unless you're a disciple yourself. However the Lord has spoken tonight, I hope it's been a help. We're going to pray, and then we have a verse of invitation. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.